Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 175. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I've got something for everybody. We've got a film noir, 1948's Pitfall, directed by Andre de Toth and starring Dick Powell, Jane Wyman, Elizabeth Scott and Raymond Burr. And from 1948 we move on to 1958 and look at one of Alec Guinness's best films. The, his 1958 adaptation of Joyce Kerry's novel The Horse's Mouth, also starring Kay Walsh, Renee Houston, and Ernest Thessinger. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old, and I have to like it. Now, you can leave feedback via MP3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U, which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates. This podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts, so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children, listen to it with your headphones on. Okay, so how's it going, people? Um, things are fine here. Uh, I'm actually on another diet in order to get a second colonoscopy because apparently I am so full of shit that some of it remained and they couldn't see my bowels as well as they would have liked to. Yes, I know I'm starting off with the really nasty, personal and shitty kind of stuff, but what the hell at this podcast is a broad church so yeah basically i'm on um, limited diet until tuesday when they ram a camera up me again um didn't find anything the first time particularly but um you get this stuff done it's kind of like getting moles looked at uh, in order to stop skin cancer so they're gonna look at and see if there are any polyps up my anus and um get them before they could become something nasty. So I'm very much in favour of preventative medicine and socialised medicine as Australia has. This isn't costing me very much at all. So I'm quite pleased by it. And the fact that they knock you out when they do it is another mercy. So there's a good way to start a podcast, isn't it? Yeah, talking about jamming things up your bum. But from there we get a little less vulgar. So we'll kind of go elsewhere for the rest of the podcast and it won't be quite as brown and sticky but if you're a gentleman or a woman of a certain age get it done if you can so we've got two movies this time around the first one's one i got on the kino lorba blu-ray release even though you can see the entire movie on youtube so if your tv gets youtube or you want to sit there and look at a laptop screen for an hour and a half you can watch pitfall on youtube it's not a bad print it's not quite as good as the kino lorba blu-ray print that i've got i believe that ucla did um tart up this particular print of the film to get rid of some of the artifacts that 60 odd years of time will put onto film stock and and thank you thank you for that ucla film school but um yeah so as usual i'm going to talk a little bit about what i has been watching now there hasn't been a lot because i got stuck in as as you'd know if you listen to the martian driving podcast i got stuck into watching all 13 episodes of marvel's jessica jones on um netflix and between netflix and the fact that we now have an xbox one my film watching time has been cut down significantly. 
Um, it's an addiction, I know that, and I'm on a 12-step plan for Xbox addiction, as indeed is Sally, who has played the entire latest Lara Croft game. But um, we'll work through that, and I'll let you know how that goes. Also been watching a lot of TV comedy on Netflix as well, so that kind of, again, does take your time away from watching films. So there are a couple of films I watched that are kind of interesting to talk about. Let's see. Yep, and when I say a couple, I definitely mean a couple. Uh, there's an old George Powell movie. Uh, directed by Byron Haskin from 1955 called Conquest of Space. There's a really nice print of it that the studio has released on YouTube. And I was testing out YouTube on the Xbox and watched Conquest of Space. It's about uh, the first mission to Mars and it's got some very dysfunctional characters in it. The um, head of the mission is an asshole who ends up turning into um, a an apocalyptic religious nut and nearly kills everybody on board the spaceship. Amongst other things, uh, it's got special effects, as you'd expect from a 1950 science fiction film, but it was ambitious for its time. There are a few mat lines around things, but um, yeah, it was uh, interesting revisiting that. I may well do it for a Martian Driving podcast because it is quite interesting from a sociological viewpoint and also from the history of special effects. So that may well be worth doing. And the other thing I did was um, World Movies is a cable channel that we have here in Australia, which shows non-English language films predominantly. And I watched a Swedish spy film called Hamilton in the Interest of the Nation. And the protagonist of it is um, kind of like the James Bond of Sweden, a character called Carl Hamilton, who has appeared in a lot of films. Um, and a lot of novels. In fact, Stellan Skarsgård played him in a film back in the 80s. And Hamilton is kind of like the James Bond of Sweden. And in this one, uh, it's a 2014 film, uh, really an interesting one, where um, there's a lot of stuff about uh, Swedish weapon systems being grabbed and hacked by terrorists, and Hamilton is sent out by the Swedish government to do something about that. And he indeed does so. Uh, not a nice action. There's, a lot of it was filmed in Jordan, so the landscapes are right. And it has um, some really cool action sequences in it, as well as a personal tragedy for Hamilton, which kind of humanises him in an interesting way. Um, it's a Swedish film, as I said, so it was all subtitled. There is some of the dialogue in English, but not a lot of it. But I kind of found that interesting. There are a couple of films following that. There's one going to come out next year, and there's another one that I'm going to have to try to find um, an English subtitle version of, because I'm getting sucked into that. And there's this whole history back as far as the 1980s of this Hamilton character in Swedish literature. So there's this kind of born-slash-James-Bond-Swedish character called Carl Hamilton. And Hamilton is a Swedish surname, for some odd reason. And um, I may have to kind of track that down. I'm, there was also a television miniseries that I'm acquiring a copy of just to kind of fill out my credentials as a lover of spy cinema. And I'll let you know how that goes. But uh, apart from Conquest of Space and Hamilton in the Interest of the Nation, I haven't been really watching that many movies, uh, which is 
something I'm going to have to look into because if it continues, the podcast go totally up the creek. But anyway, I'm going to take a break now, and when we get back, we're going to be going into one of the podcast's favourite genres, film noir, to look at the Andre de Toth-directed Pitfall from 1948, starring Dick Powell, Elizabeth Scott, Jane Wyatt, and Raymond Burr as the villain. Johnny! Your breakfast is on the table, darling. Where else would it be? Hmm? Oh, nothing. Good morning, Dad. Hi. Don't forget you're going to give me $5 today. $5? Why should I? Oh, you remember, dear. The class is raising money for the summer camp. Well, the way prices are these days, kids are going to start raising money for us. Dad, you promised. All right. Don't spend all that on women. Got to buy him a new pair of shoes this afternoon, too. Shoes? What does he do with his shoes? Eat them? He's outgrown. It's good ones. When I was his age, he went barefoot. Sunday school? Everywhere. That's Jimmy. I gotta get going. Is there anything you want me to do today, Dad? Yeah. Until my rich uncle dies, quit growing. Goodbye, Mom. Bye, dear. Better hurry. It's getting late. So what? What? I said, so what if I am late? Oh, nothing. I just thought you'd like to know. So let's don't go to work today. Let's go fishing. Oh, fine. Let's pick Tommy up and get in the car and just keep going. They got a road goes all the way to South America now. Some other time, thanks. You think the world would stop if we did? You think the Olympic Mutual Insurance Company would go out of business if I didn't walk through that door exactly at 9 o'clock every morning? Never can tell. You were voted the prettiest girl in the class. I was voted the boy most likely to succeed. Something should happen to people like that. Something did. We got married. Whatever happened to those two people who were going to build a boat and sail around the world? Well, I had a bathing. I never did hear what happened to you. Oh, come on, Wanderlust. You've got a family to support. No South America? Not today. One of the good things film noir does is it looks at society, and this one definitely does that. Um, it's a 1948 film noir, as I said, directed by Andre de Toth, a one-eyed Hungarian whose real name, according to IMDb, and I'm going to mispronounce this without a doubt, is Sasvari Fakasvalvi Tothfalusi Toth Andra Antal Mihali. He was born in 1913 in um, Hungary and died in 2002 at the age of 89 in Burbank, California. And the Toth's Pitfall is a really interesting film. Dick Powell stars as John Forbes, uh, an insurance investigator who um, is bored with his life, as that little clip I played at the start there suggests. He's bored with the middle class room. He lives in uh, quite a nice suburb with a hill view. He has a, a loving wife, played by Jane Wyman, her name's Sue. He has a son um, who is. Like all post-war kids in American movies, a little bit outspoken and a little bit of fun. His name, of course, is Tommy. See, everyone's got kind of generic names in this. But nonetheless, it's an interesting film. Um, so he's living in the dream. He goes to work at exactly the same time. He comes home at exactly the same time. And this mundanity bores the fuck out of him. He's really um, cynical about it. He's got a passive-aggressive way of talking, as you can see from some of that dialogue that I played. And he is one of those guys who's just on the brink of what actually occurs. 
Now, I'm going to have to get spoilery on this because there are a couple of interesting things I want to say about this film that absolutely require spoilers. So if you want to see the movie, pause this, go to YouTube, watch the whole film. It runs 86 minutes. And then come back and we'll have a chat. So one of the people Forbes hires in his insurance investigation business to help is a private eye called MacDonald. Uh, Mac McDonald, played by Raymond Burr. Now, this is Raymond Burr when he was probably at his heaviest weight. He's a big, bulky, then let's be honest, fat guy in this film. And he is deeply and sickly twisted. He is um, the kind of person that we invented restraining orders for. And unfortunately, this is 1948 and restraining orders aren't in place. I'll just play a little bit of the dialogue with Raymond Burr's character just to show you the kind of reprehensible piece of shit we're talking about in this. Hello, friend. Hello, Mac. What do you want? Just a kind word and a pat on the back for a job well done. Come in. Hold the calls, Maggie. What job? Smiley embezzlement case. I located about 4,000 bucks. <laughs> he had it well hidden. Where? Mona Stevens, 427 North Stockton. Nice work. No stray. Did you talk to her? Yeah. I wasn't busy looking at her. I don't blame him for robbing his company. She's with it. Maggie, bring in the Continental Finance Company file, will you? Yes, Mr. Forbes. she have the cash or what? Uh, nothing so crude. He bought her a lot of little pretties for a coat. Little things like that. You know they were bought with stolen money? Well, he's been in the can for four months. I think she has a vague idea. How much are you liable for? Thanks, Maggie. Oh, around $10,000. I bet you never thought of me as a man who could fall in love. You'd be surprised how little time I have to think about you at all, Mike. And this Mona Stevens. She's quite a girl. We're liable for around $10,000 for what he stole. I want as much of it back as possible. Of course. If you want me to, I'll have another talk with her again today. I intended to anyway. Your part of the job is finished, Mac. The company will handle it from here. What's the matter with me handling it? You'd string it along just to see the girl again. What business is that of yours? If you want any more business from this company, just stick to your detective agency. I did all right. I found her, didn't I? Yeah, that's all you're paid to do. I'll handle it from here. You, uh, don't mind if I see her on my own time, do you? Not at all. When you see her, put in a word for me, huh? Sure, Mac. I'll set up the whole thing for you. Thanks. Anything else for me to do? I'll let you know. So Dick Powell's John Forbes goes out and visits Mona Stevens in her apartment. She's played by Elizabeth Scott, an actress who did nine films all up, um, did Dead Reckoning with Bogart, um, a few other bits and pieces, but never really achieved stardom. Uh, and in this, she, she is quite good. Her character, Mona, immediately nails down all of the discontent and the character flaws that John Forbes has. She's quite perceptive, but she's got a really bad track history with men. Her boyfriend, Smiley, is in jail for stealing from the company he worked for in order to buy her nice things. And she um, is, is drawn to Forbes, as Forbes is drawn to her, because he sees the character flaws in him, him 
that his own wife never expresses. She may well see them. And um, his wife, Sue, played by Jane Wyatt, is really perceptive too. She um, has several good scenes where we realise to um, some extent the man has definitely um, married somebody who is a strong and perceptive woman. And that is one of the reasons why the bit right at the end, which I'm not going to spoil, really works. Um, There's an integrity to Jane Wyatt's portrayal of the character that I really liked in this film. So Forbes goes and visits um, Mona Stevens, played by Elizabeth Scott, who seems to be an actress or a model because she has a portfolio on her desk, which Forbes browses through before he even sees her. He knocks on the door, there's no answer, so he comes in and sees it on the table. He finds her intriguing, mostly because of the character analysis of him that she does. And she um, is kind of lonely. Her boyfriend's in jail for the insurance fraud that Forbes is investigating. And he arranges to take away all the things that her boyfriend bought her with the money. So there are some furs, some clothing. And she also tells him that she has a boat. So she has a powerboat out um, on the coast. And Forbes, being a little bit bored and a little bit kind of cocky, decides that he's going to go and see the boat. So they row out to the boat. And there's a little bit of cute dialogue as he rows out to this powerboat that she has. And they tool around the bay a little bit and um, come back again and, and there's a rapport between them and the implication, you've got to remember this is 1948 under the production code, the implication is that they have a brief affair. She then finds out that he's married and ends the affair. Meanwhile, he has been followed by MacDonald, who has formed an obsession for Mona and MacDonald beats him up in his garage and tells him to back off because he saw her first. And um, that then leads to the engine of the plot, which is phrased very badly. Sorry about that, but that's basically what happens there. Um, McDonald, also being a manipulator and being an ex-cop who has a lot of connections, goes and talks to Mona's jail boyfriend, a guy called Bill Smiley, played by Byron Barth, and starts working on him to say, well, do you know that your girlfriend is going around seeing this Forbes guy who's married? And maybe when you get out in a couple of weeks, you you really need to look into that. So he basically um, plays Iago and gets this guy to uh, be worked up about it. Now, in the meantime, he start, McDonald starts stalking Mona. She works partly as um, a model in a... Um, large department store modelling the clothing for people who are going to buy it. That's something that happened back in the day that uh, they actually had professional models in large department stores who tried on the clothing and showed off the clothing so people could see how it looked on people. And that's her job. And McDonald comes in and um, into the modelling studio and, and kind of harasses her a little bit there, says he likes the clothing, he wants to see it with the there's some very creepy stuff that goes on there. I'll leave that to you to find anyway. But And he starts, um, as I said, he starts stalking her and harassing her. Now, here's where the spoiler parts come in. There's a cup, um, Smiley gets out of jail and is given a gun by McDonald and kind of at McDonald's insistence almost, he's kind of geared up by McDonald to attack Forbes for having an affair with his girlfriend. 
So he goes around to Forbes' house and ends up being shot as an intruder. Now, the other part of this is that uh, McDonald then goes around to uh, Mona's house, Mona's apartment, and tells her that this has happened and that the best thing for her is to come away with him. So he basically almost blackmails her because of her tender feelings towards Forbes to go with him on a long trip. Now, that doesn't end quite the way he wants it to. And she shoots him. We don't actually find out whether she kills him or not because that's left up in the air in at the end of the movie. But at the end of the movie, we see a brief scene of Forbes watching her being taken away by the authorities after she's been charged with either murder or attempted murder. And she's taken away and he goes back and talks to his wife and they kind of work out what they're going to do about the relationship. Of course, she's now found out that he and Mona had an affair and there's some quite sophisticated and grown-up dialogue between the two characters about what that will do to their future relationship. But the bit that gets me, and this is the bit that I don't really like in the film, it's the one bit that seems to me to be out of tune with our 21st century sensibilities, is the fact that Mona goes to jail for shooting McDonald. Because basically she didn't have too many choices there. There were no sexual harassment laws, there's no... Um, laws about stalking there are none of those kind of instrumentalities that we've now put in place for just this situation she doesn't have a lot uh, she's a girlfriend of an ex-con who's just got out of jail she's had an affair with a married man the cops aren't going to look kindly upon her because of that and she doesn't really have any other options when somebody with the kind of sociopathic insistence of McDonald comes along and basically says let me rape you and take you away. Now, that's how we see it from our viewpoint, but of course it may have been seen differently in the 1940s. But nonetheless, that's one of the problems I have with the production code because the production code that all of the Hollywood studios were working under at the time says that murderers never get away with it. There was that kind of sort of exception in Scarlet Street, which I talked about in the previous podcast with Edward G. Robinson's character, but as a rule, murderers don't get away with murder. Law and order has to get the murderer ultimately, or fate or something, but they have to be punished and usually killed for it. Now, that's a very simplistic view of the world. You can't tell certain kinds of stories if that occurs. And this is one of those stories where the female character gets basically lassoed because you know she killed the bad guy and because she killed the bad guy she has to go to jail for it where in any reasonable court of law there in the 21st century at least there'd be those kind of extenuating circumstances she's been harassed continually by this guy she's put in a position where she has to exchange sexual favors for protecting another person and which of course is blackmail and all of those kind of things we now know and are now part of law really weren't available to women at the time and I know a little bit about this from my own personal history when um, my father was harassing my mother back in the 1960s when I was a child it was very hard particularly for somebody there was no such thing as rape within marriage for a start and there was it was very difficult for the law to put in place any kind of restraint 
upon a guy who was harassing a woman. It was an incredibly difficult thing to do. The judges and the courts and the governments didn't really understand it because they were all guys and they were all guys from a certain socioeconomic class, so they didn't really understand any of that stuff at the time. It was their job too, but they just didn't. So this kind of thing is something that kind of does pull some strings with me and it's something that I have not a great understanding of, but an unusual understanding of. My own personal history kind of influences the way I see this kind of thing. And the one thing that pissed me off in Pitfall is the fact that Mona goes to jail. Whereas all she did was choose her men badly. And, of course, shoot Raymond Burr. That part, something has to be done about. Of course, you can't just have people shooting people. But nonetheless, um, from our viewpoint, it seems monstrously unfair that that occurs. But the emphasis the movie places on it is the threat to the status quo, the threat to middle class complacency and the threat to the nuclear family is the main emphasis of this film. It's the threat that the boredom that um, Forbes has in his day-to-day job and the discontent that he finds because he's not being true to himself in some ways manifests as the affair and the affair of course skyrockets because of mcdonald and because of the fact that he um forbes starts feeling very guilty about it as of course people do but nonetheless the emphasis is on the threat to the status quo and the threat to you know man woman and child and to marriage as we know it and to the um the social and economic structures that we've set up in society um, to let our great big technological civilization exist. That's where the threat is, and the threat is to not to independent women who happen to have bad choices in boyfriends who work for a living and sue the wife doesn't work for a living, of course, because this is a 1940s movie with a 1940s American family in it, and the woman never has a job and never has a career and never has aspirations beyond the household. Nonetheless, that that pissed me off about this movie. Nonetheless, I, I like it a lot. I think Dick Powell is the perfect kind of archetypal uh, middle-class American guy in the film. Jane Wyatt is very good as Sue. Now... Um, her, she she gives a kind of real um, depth to the character that isn't really in the script. Um, she she puts in something, and I can't quite figure out what it is. But she puts in something there that makes Sue's character important in the film. Um, Elizabeth Scott is a little her character is a little underwritten because everything she talks about is in relationship to guys. It's not in relationship to her own dreams and aspirations. It's in. It's about her boyfriend. It's about McDonald harassing her. It's about the brief affair she has with Forbes. So that, that is a very underwritten character in a lot of ways. And Elizabeth Scott was never a fantastic actress. She had a certain look and a certain smouldering sensuality about her. Um, so she's maybe less so good. It's one of those roles that might have been played better by somebody like Ava Gardner had she been available. She would have been fantastic at this role. But nonetheless, we've got Elizabeth Scott in there. And then we've got Raymond Burr. Now, Raymond Burr, I find an interesting human being as well as an interesting character. He was a closeted gay man for much of his career and the success he had in things like Perry Mason and Ironside and things like that. 
um, were hidden. His real life and his real sexuality was hidden because of those things. And only in his later life where he opened up vineyards with his long-term partner and kind of toward the end of his life, his sexuality became socially acceptable. Not that anyone's sexuality ever should have to be socially acceptable as long as it's non-coercive. But there was always that kind of slight unusualness about Raymond Burr's character roles, which may well have been kind of fed into by the fact that he had to hide himself from the world to a certain extent. And in this one, he really does have a tap on the kind of narcissism and the kind of entitlement that MacDonald has as a character and the fact that he is um, kind of cynical about everything. But nonetheless, he um, forms an obsession about this woman for some very creepy reasons and then ruins a number of lives because of it, not the least of which being his own. But, um, yeah, and this, this film, in some ways as well, subverts a lot of the film noir tropes. The femme fatale in this film isn't a femme fatale. She's just basically a lonely woman who makes bad decisions. She's not actively evil the way that a lot of other people, such as um, Gene Tierney's character in Leave It to Heaven is, for instance. None of that is a part of Mona's character. She, um, she, can't, she may have at some stage known that her boyfriend was stealing to get her these nice things. But um, it's really... You know, she's not an evil character. She's just someone who makes bad judgment calls. And then, of course, you've got the boredom of Forbes's character where he seems to be locked into a life that he doesn't want, though he eventually has to come to terms with it in order to save his marriage. And, of course, there is a lot of love between um, Forbes and Sue. And, of course, they've got their son, who they both adore. But nonetheless, um, this movie doesn't have your standard tropes. The the hero protagonist is a, is a bored middle-class man. He's not somebody who's fated to have rotten things happen to him the same way as Tom Neal's character is in Detour, for instance. And, um, yeah, and, and the only person who really is a standard film noir sort of character is MacDonald, played by Raymond Burr. His villain is very much that, though there is that creepy, perverse sexuality. And I'm not saying that because Roman Boo is gay. I'm saying that McDonald, the character, has that entitlement and that kind of narcissism in his approach to women that plays genuine and plays genuinely creepy from our viewpoint. He's, and of course, I'm, I'm obsessed by this at the moment. He's a little bit like Kilgrave in Jessica Jones. He's got that selfishness and other people's feelings don't matter it's just what he wants and what he feels about things and he makes that mistake which many men do of mistaking obsession with love love's a reciprocal thing in my book and obsession is a one-way street and mcdonald's definitely that um roman burr kind of dresses down as McDonald, he, as I said, he had a lot of weight on him at the time. And he's got one of those kind of short ties with the fancy pattern on it. And he's, um, yeah, he's just a nasty piece of work. He's one of the, he's a good solid, and I don't mean that because of the weight, a good solid film noir villain in the sense that 
the the threats he makes not only to the family life of um, Forbes, who's made that mistake with Mona, and uh, well, error in judgment. I won't say mistake, but error in judgment with Mona. Um, all of his life is threatened. The life of himself, his wife, and his child is threatened. First by his actions, and second by the fact that. Um, McDonald is going to reveal them. Then, of course, there's a threat to Smiley, who's going to go back to jail if he acts on the influence that McDonald has on him. Then, you've got, of course, you've got the effects that it has on Mona. Um, and for me, that played true as well. Uh, one of the things I know about people who are like that is that the effect they have on others spreads very wide. Somebody with that kind of glitch in them has a profound effect on a number of people over a very long period of time in some cases. And for me, that kind of was psychologically true. There was a psychological truth to that, which I found a little bit refreshing and a little bit nice. And maybe I'm projecting into the film. Who the fuck knows? We all project into films to a certain extent. And maybe I'm projecting into this one to an extent. But I found, of the characters, I, I did find a lot of sympathy for... Dick Powell's John Forbes because Dick Powell is just such a likeable character actor. He um, he started out, of course, as I said before in an earlier podcast, as a song and dance man, um, singing The Girl in the Police Gazette and all those kind of things, and then started to do character roles and started to do the kind of roles that question middle-class assumptions. And then, of course, he did. Um, he became a director as well. Made, made a number of films. Had the Dick Powell show on television, where there would um, it was an anthology show of dramatic um, storytelling, which kind of moved forward the um, the art of dramatic storytelling in television to a large extent. So, all credit to him for that. And um, yeah, he, he's he's what got um, a likability and a kind of every man look about him that, that really did work in cinema and of course he is in one of my favourite films of all time, The Bad and the Beautiful but um, in this one he does play the flawed human being and um, to an extent he's, he pays a certain price for it and yet he doesn't He's the fact that his wife ultimately says I'm taking you back but I'm not sure if things are going to be the same for a long time or if they're ever going to be the same, there's always that uncertainty but in the sense, he loses less than any of the other main characters um, in the um, infidelity and the um, events that take place during the film. Yes, he does get beaten up and ends up in bed for a while, but he does pay the least price of any of the main characters in the film. But uh, the look of the film is great too. It's, there's nothing spectacular about the Toff's direction, but it's a good, honest piece of work there's good use of locations around los angeles as well so we kind of have that thing that i like about seeing how places looked in the real world at the time the film was being made so we do get some shots of 1940s los angeles with some skyscrapers going up in the background of a a couple of scenes and and things like that so i always find that really interesting and i mean it's not among my favorite films noir but I think it's a good, honest one. And with that exception of the fate of Mona Stevens, I think it's a, a good, honest effort. But of course, movies reflect the times they're made in. And the, this movie is definitely about um, the bullshit of the American dream as it was in the middle of the 20th century. And, and 
the fact that if you get a good job and you get a family, everything will be okay. And to have aspirations beyond that is a threat to the status quo. I think that that's the main takeaway from this film. But anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When we get back, we're going to talk about something much lighter than film noir, um, illicit affairs, psychotic private eyes and other things like that. And we're going to look at a um, beautiful comedy with a script by Alec Guinness, starring Alec Guinness, based on Joyce Carey's novel, The Horse's Mouth. Some fellows see the girl that they love in a dream Some fellows see their love in a rippling stream I saw the girl that I can't forget On the cover of a police gazette If I could find her life would be peaches and cream Oh, my search will never cease For the girl on the police gazette For the pretty young brunette on the pink police gazette And above my mantelpiece There's a page of the police gazette With a pretty young brunette On the pink police gazette I love to stop At my favorite barbershop to take another look at the girl that I haven't met yet. And my longing will increase for the girl on the police gazette. For the pretty young brunette on the pink police gazette. Where's that pretty young brunette on the pink police gazette? Where's that pretty young brunette on the pink police gazette? I love to stop. That, of course, was Dick Powell singing The Girl in the Police Gazette, an Irving Berlin tune from the early part of the 20th century. So let's move on to The Horse's Mouth. Now, movies about artists are a bit difficult to do. Uh, the only one I can think of that I've talked about in a previous podcast was A Fine Madness, the one where Sean Connery plays a mad poet. And um, 
does some really weird and unusual things with it. But um, this movie is very highly regarded for a number of reasons. It uh, came immediately after Alec Guinness won the um, Oscar for his role in The Bridge on the River Kwai. In fact, they gave him the award on the set of The Horse's Mouth. Uh, and it's, it does kind of show us artists the way that if you know any artists at all, you know that they really are. Uh, in the movie and in the book as well, I just started rereading the book while I was prepping for this podcast. I do have an old paperback of it, um, a Penguin Modern Classics edition. The original came out in 1944, but this edition, he said, is the 1972 one. And, yeah, uh, the price of it in Australia at the time in 1972 was $1.55. I wish paperbacks were a dollar fifty-five still, but they're not. The reason I wish they were a dollar fifty-five was back in the day and around the time this paperback was coming out. In fact, um, I was young and on the dole, and you could actually afford to feed yourself, kind of shelter yourself, and still buy paperback novels at the time because they were so cheap. In fact, there were times when I went without food to buy books. That's how much in love with learning I was and still am, though, of course, I now have the internet, so the whole universe is out there for me to find with very little effort and absolutely no movement. But The Horse's Mouth is a lot of fun. It really is a a joyously enjoyable movie. In it, Alec Guinness plays Gully Jimson, an artist who's just got out of Wormwood Scrubs. He's been in there for a month for making harassing phone calls to a patron of the arts, a gentleman by the name of Hickson, played by Ernest Thesiger. Now, Ernest Thesiger, you remember, played um, the weird old scientist in the second Frankenstein movie, Bride of Frankenstein. He was Dr. Pretorius in that. Um, and in this, he, he's a lot of fun as um, Hickson. He's And the interesting thing, of course, is that Ernest Sessinger himself was a pretty good watercolour artist, so he was definitely on board with this particular project. And he's uh, he plays a, a rich patron of the arts who ended up acquiring most of Jimson's early artwork by, from buying it uh, from his ex-wife. <laughs> um, a very lovely lady played in this movie by Renee Houston. She's uh, an ex-artist's wife who's kind of divorced Jimson and gone into domestic um, happiness in a little suburban cottage, but she's still got a little bit of the sauciness and the naughtiness about her that she had in her younger days because Gally Jimson goes and visits her at one stage, along with his new friend, Miss D. Coker, played really brilliantly and wonderfully, and against type by Kay Walsh. She's a kind of dowdy and, and frumpy lady. She works in a bar for part of the movie and um, is kind of Jimson's friend. Um, And uh, there's also another friend, a guy called Nosy, played by Mike Morgan, an actor who had a very short career. He only made a couple of movies. Not long after this movie was made, and in fact, before he could do a lot of the um, post-sync of the dialogue, he died of meningitis at a very young age, and a lot of his stuff had to be um, redubbed with another actor. So here's a piece of the audio from the movie where... At the start of the film, Gully Jimson is met outside Wormwood Scrubs by Nosy, the guy who wants Gully Jimson to teach him how to be an artist. And good riddance to bad rubbish. 
Mr. Jimson, it's me, Nosey. Don't you remember me? No, I don't. But you must, Mr. Jimson. You've only been inside a month. Ah, I looked after all your things, Mr. Jimson, while you were in pre... pre... jail. They broke all the windows, but I boarded them up. The picture's all right, Mr. Jimson, except for some bullet holes. Go away, Scram. Tie lead weights to your feet, fireworks in your hair, kiss your mother goodbye and jump in the river. I don't know you. I don't want to know you. Buzz off. Explode. You're not well, Mr. Jimson. I want to help you. You're, you're a genius. Everyone says so. You must let me help you and learn from you. You again? What now? Officer, I'm being menaced by a dangerous youth. He thinks I'm Michelangelo or Rembrandt or Van Gogh or Picasso. I'd be safer inside. Take me back. Take you back? Not in a thousand years. I'll paint you a great wall. The most exciting and beautiful thing you've ever seen. Don't think the governor would approve. Well, then lock up this dreadful youth. You'd better get out of the police. Now see what you've done. Got me locked out for life. I am sorry, Mr. Jimson. I only want to help. I, I want to see you a citizen, recognized by society. Look, I've saved three in a tanner for you from my paper round. Keep it. No, Mr. Jimson, you mustn't. Not that again. Artery threats down the telephone and filthy words. That's what landed you in trouble before, Mr. Jimson. You mustn't do it. I shan't let you. I've only popped in to press button B. Never miss an opportunity of pressing button B. Um, do you really want to help me, Nosy? Of course I do, Mr. Jimson. Well, add one and five minutes to that and get me some cigarettes. If I do, you promise you won't phone Mr. Hickson? I promise. Joyce Carey's novel is an interesting one to read. It's the stream of consciousness in the view from the viewpoint of uh, Gully Jimson. Now, before you asked, Joyce Carey was a guy; he wasn't a woman. And in fact, he based the character on uh, a great friend of his, the a poet, not an artist, but he was great friends with Dylan Thomas. And in 1944, he um, published the novel. The Horse's Mouth, changing it from a poet to an artist. Now, Gully Jimson's a wonderful um, creation. He's a scrounger. He's, uh, look, he looks like a derelict, basically. He um, takes advantage of people outrageously. He's um, selfish and, and rude and abrupt and lecherous and a brilliant artist. Um, though, in his later career, in his early career, he, um, his paintings are very well regarded and worth a lot of money. But he's now got an obsession with two things. He's got an obsession with painting paintings on enormous walls, and he has an obsession with the human foot. So all of his paintings have enormous feet in them. So um, Jimson goes back to his studio, which is actually on a barge moored at Chelsea on the bank of the Thames and starts working again on his paintings. He's got three great paintings that he wants to do before he totters off the mortal coil. And those paintings are The Fall of Man, which is the painting that he's doing in his studio, uh, The Raising of Lazarus, and The Last Judgment. The Raising of Lazarus and The Last Judgment, he does complete before the movie is ended. Um, They both have feet in them, of course. And he does them in quite unusual ways. Now, Gully Jimson, the character, was called by Pauline Cale. He's a fabulous creation. The modern artist has a scruffy, dirty little bum. And other people have said he's the artist as destroyer. Now, uh, after being rejected by Hickson, he wants some money to do these three last projects. 
um, he, uh, oddly enough, lucks onto uh, a new patrons of the arts, a millionaire and his wife, not Thurston Hell III, a different millionaire and his wife. And they are Sir William Beater, played by Robert Coote, and Lady Beater, played by Veronica Turley. Now, they want to buy an early Jimson artwork, so he goes into their house and finds an enormous wall blank because they did have a tapestry hung on the wall, but it's now out for cleaning. And he gets obsessed with painting the raising of Lazarus on the wall of their very posh apartment. While discussing this and while flirting with Lady Beater, he does um, get very, very drunk on expensive brandy and the beaters who are going to Jamaica for the summer leave him to sleep it off in their apartment, which is a bad move because he takes over the apartment and decides to make the painting. As he does this, of course, a friend of his, an art uh, sculptor, also wants to use the very expensive apartment, which they finance the art by selling off bits of antique clocks and all sorts of other things from the apartment um that doesn't go well and they end up using the apartment below as well now there's a gag using a carpet in this scene as it plays out to the end when the beaters come back from jamaica which was pinched by blake edwards for the movie sob but it plays out better in this film so gully jimson makes this enormous painting of the raising of lazarus on the wall of the beaters' apartment while they were away on holiday. And the whole place turns into an artist's studio. They've got people brewing pots of tea. There are nude models um, sitting around posing for the sculptor. It, basically, the, everything turns anarchic wherever Gully Jimson is. And this is a beautiful piece of work by... Alec Guinness. Um, it was directed by Ronald Neem, the film as well. And Ronald Neem tells a story about how Alec Guinness and he interacted during the film. Uh, Alec Guinness, of course, produced it. He wrote it and he was starring in it. His star was in the ascendancy because of that role in The Bridge on the River Quiet. So they start the film. They start filming the film. And Neem noticed that over the first three or four weeks of filming that Alec Guinness is becoming more and more depressed. He's really down his energy levels are down and um eventually he goes into um alec guinness's dressing room and says listen alec i noticed you're getting very depressed here what's wrong and he said well i'm the star and i'm the direct i'm the um writer of this piece and um i really need you guys to tell me when i do good work because i'm not getting any feedback from you and i'm getting very depressed by that and Ronald Neem laughs, not at him, but with him, and says, listen, we're just trying to keep up with you. You're, you're brilliant at this, and all of the rest of us are just trying to keep up with you in your brilliance. And Elegant said to him, well, you know, artists are children, and, and actors are children. We do need to be patted on the head sometimes, and sometimes we need to be scolded. So <laughs> even somebody who had just won an Oscar for a brilliant piece of work in Bridge on the River Kwai has that insecurity and needs that feedback. So it's important to realise people need feedback. And Ali Guinness in A Horse's Mouth was one of those people. Um, the character actors in this film are fantastic. I like Ernest Sessinger a lot as Hickson. He, he's a kind of posh old patriarchal character. And uh, he's 
keeps losing servants because they get fed up with Gully Jimson calling up and saying obscene things over the telephone to him. He um, and he is quite uh, understated for an assessor who tended to play camp things up a little bit in his acting, but in this one he he does play it very well and very likable, which which is um, a little bit of a change from the other things that I've seen him in. And then of course we've got um, Kay Walsh playing Miss Coker who's um, very kind of prim and proper and says her prayers at night, but nonetheless supports Gully in everything he does. Renee Houston is a hell of a lot of fun as um, Sarah Monday, the ex-wife of Gully Jimson. And she shows us that um, a lot of matronly middle-aged ladies have a past that was very wild and reckless and, and weirdly wonderful. And she does play that beautifully in um, Ali Guinness definitely plays up to what he, he pinches her on the bum at one stage and um there, there's still a residual fondness between the two characters which is it was very sweet in its own way the artworks that um gully jimson produces was were made by what was called a kitchen sink artist at the time a guy called john Brappy. and if you go onto ebay you can actually buy a john Brappy painting for about five thousand quid english money um, he, like Gully Jimson, liked painting ladies in the nude, and his wife was often one of his models for it. He's got a very kind of interesting style about him. It's very kind of chunky artwork. And um, his art for the film is great. There's a, a bit with a very kind of William Blake-looking tiger in the um, raising of Lazarus, which is quite fun, and there are lots of human feet and some wonderful faces. And eventually, Gully Jimson, after having made the raising of Lazarus in the Beaters' um, living room, and in an odd way giving them uh, an immortal piece of artwork, even though he wrecks their apartment, he has, in a sense, improved it and improved their lives as well, particularly Lady Beater, who ends up helping Gully Jimson with his final project of the film. The Last Judgment, and um, Nosy and Jimson are, are sitting in a, a doorway of an abandoned church, and um, Nosy finds him a wall, an enormous wall inside this church which is about to be ripped down, which Gully Jimson then decides he's going to do his last judgment on. But he does it in an odd way. He kind of anticipates, in a very interesting way, crowdsourcing, because he... Tell, he puts up a sign saying art lessons six shillings and basically gets a whole bunch of aspiring young people and young artists to not only give him the money but they get to do different squares of the painting so there's like A1, B2, C3 and all that kind of thing and each of the um, aspiring art students gets to do one of the squares and this enormous canvas or enormous mural of the Last Judgment appears on the wall over time. And one of the people who comes in and helps out with it is Lady Beta, which is kind of cool because she's an amateur artist and her artwork's very kind of in a naive style, but it's not bad, but it's not particularly good either. And there's a very funny scene where Gully Jimson is um, looking at her artwork at Lord Beta's insistence and um, really uh, has a wonderful range of expressions crossing his face as he does it now this film is a joy from that from a dozen different viewpoints a lot of it was filmed on location there are some studio shots but a lot of it is on location and the creation of Gully Jimson is one of the great comic creations 
you can forget Obi-Wan Kenobi, you can forget George Smiley. This is one of the best and most fun Alec Guinness roles. It really is to- a total joy to behold. And um, I can't speak highly enough of this movie. Now, the one thing that pisses me off about this film, and it's a totally tangential thing, it's not directly related to the film at all, is Umbrella Entertainment, who are a great Australian distributor of discs, had a sale on. And this movie I got for, before postage, on DVD, $3. Now, this movie is worth a ton more than that. This should be a $20 movie, but... uh, like uh, we're selling it off on sale for three bucks. You can still go to uh, if you type Umbrella Entertainment into Google, you can get an Australian release of The Horse's Mouth for three bucks plus postage, which is ridiculous because it's just such a fun film. It, it talks a lot about what it is to be an artist, it talks a lot about people's passion for art, and it has some wonderful paintings in it by John Bratby. Uh, I, I like this film a lot. I've seen it twice now. I saw it once about two years ago, and then I saw it when I watched it for the podcast. And I, I like it a lot. It, it really does talk about art and the obsessions of artists in an interesting way. The, the book does as well. The book's very clear on that. In the first five pages, there's a lot of description of the part of London that um, Gully Jimson's in. And it's all done from an artist's viewpoint and with an artist's eye. And there's some beautiful dialogue and a beautiful stream of consciousness describing the muddy banks of the Thames in a very kind of run-down part of London at the time, but talking about it as if it were a magical place. And that's what this movie does too. It turns some of the seedier parts of London in some parts and some of the posher parts of London in other parts. It kind of reverses them. It turns the seedy parts into a magical place where old sea captains pipe you on board your barge in the morning and the evening, and where the posh and very well laid out and very tasteful apartments of the rich are turned into much more interesting places by getting a whole bunch of artists to go in there and just create artworks in them. It's, this movie's got a, a kind of anarchic joy to it. It's a, enjoyable for that point of view. It's over the top, it's silly, and the central character, who would in real life be incredibly annoying, turns out to be kind of lovable and has a send-off which is quite memorable as well. The book ends differently than the movie. The movie has a great ending, which I'm not going to spoil. But in the book, um, Gully Jimson dies of a stroke. But in very Gully Jimson sort of style. But the movie doesn't have that. It doesn't have that kind of an ending. It has a more open and anarchic ending. And a beautiful image, which I'm not going to spoil again. Uh, just to cap it off, this this movie is a, a wonderful film. Uh, it's in colour, so it's got um, some really vivid things. I don't think you could have made this movie without it being in colour because you just need those kind of vivid hues that Gally Jimson puts into his artwork. And it's real fun. And it's one of those movies that doesn't have a mean bone in its body. Even the characters that Gally Jimson makes fun of are harmless and there's no villains in this movie at all there's nothing evil in this movie it's all about people and and their quirks and their idiosyncrasies and i like that a lot uh, it's in the same vein as a lot of the ealing comedy some of which Alec guinness of course did but it's very much of itself and 
It makes me wish I had some of John Bradby's artwork, to be honest with you. But that's about all I'm going to talk about with The Horse's Mouth. See the film if you haven't seen it. There are clips, but not the full film, on YouTube. But it's worth getting, and if you can't find it anywhere else, uh, Google uh, Umbrella Entertainment and get the Australian one, and get yourself a multi-zone DVD player if you haven't already, because you're going to miss out on a lot of good stuff if you don't. So that's about it for this podcast. Um, my throat's starting to give out, which is what happens when I go into a long, wonderful rant about a long, one, oh, short, wonderful film. Um, anyway, take care of yourselves. Look after yourselves. Be nice to yourselves. We're heading into a time that can be both fun and stressful. So if you need to do something nice for yourself at this stressful time of the year, please do so. Take care of yourselves. Watch some good films, watch some bad films, watch films by yourself, watch films in the company of people you can watch films with. And I'll be back in a week with another Martian Drive-In podcast, in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. Anyway, I'll see you guys then and take care. And now, as usual, here is my own patrons of the arts, the people who support this podcast via the Patreon campaign who really do a lot to help this particular Gully Jimson and of course the credits are in the style of movie credits so take care and I'll talk to you guys soon and here are the credits for the Patreon subscribers to the podcast in the style of movie credits I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller Sarah the Special Effects Technician Ian the Caterer Grant the Technicolor Consultant Claire the Script Doctor Gary the Prop Master Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Armin, the key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the Donut Wrangler, Tim, the New York Unit Director, and Rabbi Steve, our Spiritual Advisor. We also have Paul, who does the special makeup effects, and Kathleen, who has yet to have a job in the credits. And Eric, of course, is the set security lead. So thank you to everybody who supports the podcast and to the people who listen to it. If you want to support the podcast with some micropayments, please go to patreon.com slash paleocinema and I'll catch all of you next time.